0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On Remembrance Day, I began my program talking to Ted Barris, Canadian author of a number of books on the Canadian military and war, including Victory at Vimy. And Juno, Canadians at D-Day, June 6, 1944. Jenny Mignot is the wife of a Canadian Afghanistan campaign veteran who suffered significant PTSD. Jenny has, for several years, waged a battle for the identity and the dignity of caregivers and wounded veterans. Those are her words. And she literally chased Veterans Affairs Minister Julian Fantino to make her case. I spoke with Jenny about the mission she's on. He calls himself Left Behind Alex. His real name is Sajad. He lives in Afghanistan. He's under threat of death from the Taliban because he was an interpreter for the Canadian Armed Forces. Sajjad very much wants to come to Canada and become a Canadian, but the government and the opposition parties show no interest. Along with Sajad, I spoke with James Akam. He is also an interpreter, a friend of Sajad's. Only James made it to Canada. He's living in Calgary and he's a Canadian citizen. Major Mark Campbell is a decorated regular forces infantry soldier, 32 years experience, PPCLI. In Afghanistan on the 2nd of June 2008, he fell victim to an IED of the Taliban. I spoke with Major Campbell about his life before and after June 2nd, 2008. One of the things I wanted to do on Remembrance Day was speak to Canadians about family members and friends of theirs who have served. We did. Here's what we heard. Well, it's a special day on the 11th of November, and particularly because this year, because the world is paying attention. Quite often, it's a, it's a day that receives attention from those of us who really care, and not so much from others. But I woke up this morning, and one of the first things I did was think about my dad. And I tweeted about that, 19 years old, I was just a kid who found himself at Dunkirk. And uh, last year, of course, Dunkirk the movie was a massive success. He wasn't one of the lucky ones who was uh, able to get back to England in that flotilla of people and ordinary boats. He was captured by uh, German forces. And my uh, my grandparents still have the telegrams. My grandparents received uh, two telegrams from the war ministry, one informing them that their son was missing, in action didn't mean he was dead, but missing in action. And the second one confirming that he was a prisoner of war. And both of the uh, telegrams instructed my grandparents to let them know if they found out anything at all about my father's condition or situation, because they might find out faster than uh, the ministry would. And, of course, they wanted to know everything that was going on. My dad did escape from German forces, and when I was a little kid, I asked him about it. And uh, his answer to me was, and I still remember this, was we didn't like it, so we left. So my dad died when I was twelve years old, so I was never able to really catch so I was talking to him about everything that he experienced. But my mother told me a lot, and uh, among the things was that he had uh, made his way along the the roads in France by himself alone and had stolen some clothing off a wash line, so he was out of uniform and He decided that he would walk the roads in the open as opposed to uh, trying to escape through the woods or the countryside. And uh, German convoys would go by, and he'd wave to the soldiers, and they'd wave back to him. If he'd ever been stopped in question, they would have shot him on the spot as a spy because he was out of uniform. Then eventually uh, met up with some or somehow met up with members of the French resistance— and ended up spending a significant period of time with them in uh, commando raids or sort of tactics that they uh, developed to, uh, to fight the German forces. So those are, that's the first thing I thought about this morning. And I'm sure that for so many people it was you thought about somebody in your family, somebody close to you, somebody who served, somebody serving now. And later on in the show, we'll give you an opportunity. I'm actually I'm actually quite anxious to hear this. Here's some of your stories and some of your memories about people in your family or circle of friends who served or may still be doing so. I want to play something for you just before I speak to my guest, Ted Barris, Canadian author of numerous books on the Canadian military and war, including Victory at Vimy and Juno, Canadians at D-Day, June 6, 1944, The Great Escape, Deadlock in Korea, Canadians at War, and Breaking the Silence, Veterans Untold Stories from the Great War to Afghanistan, and uh, Mr. Barris' new book, The Dambusters*. Busters. But I want to play this for you first. Played it yesterday. Haven't played it for a long time. My uh, my good friend, Ed Mahoney, who's no longer with us, but served uh, in the Canadian Forces, was on Juneau Beach on the 6th of June, 1944. I know his bride, Clara, is listening now. and I was talking to her briefly this morning. Hi, Clara. Uh, here's what Ed told me on air, some years ago, about Juno Beach when he was there.
1: The aircraft in the sky, we had 4,000, they, they say there were approximately 4,000 aircraft supporting us. They were attacking everything, including us, but uh, then going into the beach, uh, it was something that uh, I wouldn't like to go through again. I was one of the fortunate ones, but uh, we made it, thank God. There was a lot that didn't, but that's that's part of war. Eh? We did it uh, with our hearts, and uh, I would do it
0: again. Those last words, I would do it again. <clears throat> each time I hear that, it shakes me up. Ted Barris joins us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the chorus, Radio Network Victory at MIMI. The Great Escape, the Korean Campaign, Deadlock in Korea, Canadians at War. And uh, the Dam Busters, Ted, thank you very much for taking the time. And when you hear Ed Mahoney, the voice of Ed Mahoney about being on Juneau Beach on the 6th of June, 1944, what does that do to you? Well, I'm killed
2: by his words. I would do it again, which illustrates to you the kind of commitment these people had to what they were doing. Um, I spent a lot of time with D-Day veterans, because they came in, the artillery came in on on rafts and, and vessels, the same as the men did. Uh, the floating tank troopers, the the naval people who got the soldiers ashore. I've talked to members of the Queen's Own and and the, and the um, well, I'll some of the, the French regiments that came ashore on bernier sur mer and Cressols-sur-Mer, and and that stuff chills me to realize what they went through, uh, running the gauntlet to get up to some protection. Um, but I'm haunted by that phrase that Ed gave you when he said, I would do it again. He, he obviously sensed the importance of it. And and I think maybe that's, that's, that's an interesting point because we sometimes equate soldiers who are low on the totem pole as not really knowing what they're doing. I remember talking to a veteran once who said, don't ask me about strategy and politics and the big picture. All I know was the six feet of war in front of me, behind me, and in back of me. Uh, and that's all I was concerned about. But I think for Ed, in hindsight, to have said that, he recognized the importance of what, did, what they did and, and why it was so necessary.
0: You know, I, those words have always stayed with me as well. Uh, I would do it again. And I think Ed was 83 at the time that he he said that to me. And my, my guess is that many of many of the soldiers who were there who experienced that hell survived it and then went on to fight the next day and the day and the day and the day after that. If they were lucky all the way to the end, and then come home, they would repeat that phrase. I think so, um,
2: and and if it's not that exact statement, it's it's statements such as that. I mm-hmm. remember um, this morning I was speaking at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum in Hamilton, and um, one of the phrases that was ringing in my head was one given to me by the navigator of one of the dams raid Lancasters, a man named Don McLean, and and. In the context of my book, um, he he, he commented on why what they were doing. This is this famous raid against the Ruhr River dams in 1943 in the spring. It didn't wasn't a death blow to the Nazis by any stretch of the imagination, but it was an important turning point for morale. And what Don said in his memoirs—I didn't speak with him, but I spoke with his um, sons—was that there was a principle at stake here. This was necessary he was relating some of the pacifism that was existent around him in the 1930s just as the war broke out, but he sensed that there was a greater importance than maybe adhering to that uh, philosophy, and 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 the greater point, it's the greater uh, risk was if they did nothing, then the disaster would be greater. So he, uh, the perception that these young men and women had of the greater need, and maybe the the wisdom of their of their decisions, uh, always amazes me.
0: Now, I was saying to somebody, I'll take a break in a second, then we'll talk some more. I want to ask you about Vimy and and uh, some of the other books you've written, uh, and, and thank you for thank you for doing what you're doing, and that is chronicling in a in a way that we can all appreciate and understand the significant importance of um, Canadian uh, participation in, in conflict and war. And then beyond that, also looking at the bigger picture of war. Thank you for doing that, Ted. Ted, talk to us about, Vimy, please, the multi day battle during which Canada's soldiers accomplished what their Allied counterparts could not.
2: It was a remarkable moment in our history and in the history of the Great War because um, it illustrated uh, very much a, a, a continuous characteristic of Canadians, and that was that they weren't professionals, they were not regular soldiers, they were volunteers. And that's one of the reasons that Vimy was so successful, because Arthur Curry, for all the other things that he might be criticized of, recognized that men who had come from Canada had very specific skills and had a a sense of task that is getting a job done. So if they were farmers or fishermen or lumberjacks or laborers or even students, the idea of a task was very present and very obvious and and accomplishable, if that's a word. But the point that, that happened was that at Vimy, when they arrived at this ridge north of Paris, Um, It had been fought over for the better part of two years. The British and the French had lost 140,000 casualties attempting to take it back from the Germans. The Germans were there to stay. It was a strategic location, high from there you could see all the way back to Belgium and halfway to Paris. And so it was a strategic piece of land uh, that was fought over uh, those two years with no, to no avail, by the Allies. Um, In the December period, 1916, uh, the Canadians are told that for the first time they're going to bring all four of their divisions together in an attempt to take the ridge from the Germans. and nobody, the French, the British, other colonial army commanders, expects the Canadians will do anything. They, they think of them as bums, a bunch of you know workers and so on. And so what happens is Curry lets them loose and they begin to transform the preparations for the battle into a task, whether it was tunneling uh, to lay explosives, whether it was retrenching, whether it was practicing the creeping barrage where the artillery would fire the friendly fire over their heads and advance as they and moved toward the enemy trenches, or using um, aircraft and spotters and, and means of, of pinpointing German artillery. All of this was science and task-oriented, and the Canadians delivered a victory when no one expected it because of that very factor. So the four days um, are another horrific battle, but when the uh, Allied generals expected that there would be 60,000 casualties— in the hospitals along the coast of France at a top and Boulogne. Um, indeed, there were many fewer. There were 10,000 casualties, um, nearly 5,000 dead. But uh, the job was done when no one else could do it.
0: Yeah. Just a remarkable, remarkable, as you say, focus, Canadian focus, on getting the job done, and they did. Now, Canada's military involvement in major conflicts elsewhere, like Korea, Afghanistan, brutal peacekeeping missions like at the former Yugoslavia, they don't get as much attention. And I've often been told by Korean veterans, conflict veterans, why are we left out of the equation? Was a, it, it, when you talk on Remembrance Day, that was a major contribution and sacrifice by th- by these men who fought in Korea. Very much so, and,
2: and we were the first uh, signatories uh, to the UN peace agreement Uh, in 1945-46 which was why we were there in Korea all signatories agreed that if anyone's any member's borders were breached and in this case South Korea's were um, every other other member would jump to that country's aid and so as signatories to the UN peace agreement we were there to defend South Korea and we sent nearly 30,000 Canadians over the course of the three years of the war which was a a horrific uh, war of attrition it was essentially um, a stalemate In fact, it's interesting. One of the lieutenants I spoke to uh, who was a veteran of Korea said my grandfather would have understood Korea better than I do, meaning that he would have understood trench warfare, which was very much the way Korea was fought after a certain point when it reached a stalemate. But forgotten probably, Roy, because... In 1950, Canada and the rest of the world were war-fatigued. We had gone through the Great War and the, S- the Second World War, and nobody wanted to deal with another yet another conflagration like this. In fact, we, we have to be very careful. We don't refer to it as a conflict or a policing action. It was indeed a hot war, and any Korean War veteran who's gone through it would, would, em- would echo that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're sent there um, as if policing, as if it's a conflict, as if it's a backwater place. But indeed, it was the first uh, confrontation between um, the Chinese and the Western powers. It was the first potentially to involve nuclear weapons, because the Americans threatened it at one point. um, uh, And and fortunately, uh, Truman uh, prevented the the then general from using them. Um, This was a a real flashpoint, and anybody who was there in Korea, um, one from Canada, had very little equipment, was poorly informed as to what they were up against, and still faced the same hot war that his brother might have faced in the Second
0: World War. Yeah, yeah they're, uh, they deserve far more recognition and attention than they received. Let me ask you in the minute or so we have left, I wish you had, we had more, but tell, talk to us about your most recent book, The Dam Busters.
2: Well, this is a, a little-known story too—not forgotten, but lost in the in the war events that were much greater. Uh, this was in 1943 when there was no good news for the Allies, and the sense was that the enemy in in Nazi Germany was not necessarily the troops, the armies, and so on, but the steel that created their weapons. And so, the idea of attacking where the steel was made—the Ruhr River dams, which powered uh, these industrial plants—was um, the idea of a man named Barnes Wallace, an engineer in England, and he sensed that that was the target. So he up with this idea of a bouncing bomb to actually bounce a bomb over top of torpedo nets which are protecting the dams and the reservoirs that what was needed were the crews to deliver this extraordinary and unique and if a little kooky bomb but um, after seven and a half weeks of training 133 crewmen of uh, bomber command British Australian New Zealand and Canadian one American um, pull this off they breached two of the dams in one night May 16 17 1943 and while as they say it wasn't a death blow it was a huge morale lift for the Allies, particularly the Commonwealth
0: countries. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tremendous story, and I'm looking forward to uh, to getting your book and reading the Dambuster story again. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for the focus that you place on the contributions by Canadians to the kind of world that we. The best of the world that we live in now, the, the peaceful part of things. And there are there are concerns, and obviously, and we talk about those a great deal. But uh, a tremendous amount of sacrifice to accomplish the good that we have.
2: Yes, and, and Roy, thanks for the opportunity for me to say publicly to those veterans
0: today and to the families of those lost, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Ted Barris. All the best to you. You too. Ted Barris, The Dam Busters, is his new book. Jenny Mignot is... Uh, the, the wife uh, of a Canadian Afghanistan campaign veteran who suffered significant PTSD. And Jenny uh, has for several years waged a, quote, battle for the identity and the dignity of caregivers of wounded veterans. She literally chased then Veterans Affairs Canada minister Julian Fantino to make her case. Uh, Jenny's marriage eroded, and uh, she did begin a cross-country tour to have a better understanding of the provincial challenges, I'm quoting from her email to me, imposed on veterans on top of the abandonment by Veterans Affairs. Remembrance Day, we're going to remember what was done for us by veterans, but we also have to keep in mind and keep a focus on what is necessary today to provide those who require help and require assistance and require government support, the support, the help, and the assistance that they so much need. Jenny, thank you for taking the time.
3: Thank you so much, Roy. May I just start by correcting you? Um, neither my ex-husband or my spouse served in Afghanistan. Just to, to to correct the story, because they they never served, and that's the point. Either they served in Afghanistan or in Bosnia, or like my spouse, you know, served with Swissair, for instance. Pain is the same for everyone, and. I'd like to add also that today is a very difficult day for many of them and many of us as families, and many cannot attend a ceremony today, and that's okay. The important thing is everyone is commemorating in a respectful way, and it's okay today to commemorate your own way.
0: If you need help,
3: it's important to remind everyone to please reach out. Today is tough.
0: I think the first time you and I talked was five or six years ago, and uh, I I apologize for the mistake about your husband or ex-husband having been in Afghanistan. I just made that connection, and I shouldn't have. But uh, how did the issue of lack of care or lack of government engagement for a caregiver for a wounded—and PTSD is is a wound— Uh, how did that first present itself to you? How did you first become aware that what you needed wasn't there?
3: When I went back to school, actually, in order to save what was left of my family back then, to realize that I could be sort of educated to deal with the symptoms of my husband's PTSD, right? Right. Because until then, I was fighting something I didn't realize. And unfortunately, I believe that I was not helping him because I was not properly educated. So when I realized that I, you know, if you could can train a service dog to help a suffering veteran, we could be trained too in some ways. And that was missing. So when I chased Mr. Fantino, that's all really I wanted to tell him say, hey, I understood that I could be trained and save what's left of my family. And I was so afraid back then that my ex-husband would commit suicide because it, it, it really was tough. You know, there are the symptoms and there is the effect of the isolation and the misunderstanding and of services that don't make sense and fighting the system and just feeling that the most important people around you just don't understand, like you're suffering, and in, in the end don't know how to talk to you.
0: Yeah, and so how
3: that was the beginning of the journey, basically.
0: Yeah, and how do you know, as a person who isn't trained, who's not encountered this before, how do you know how to help the person who requires the assistance so desperately? And this is what you've been, uh, you've been tr- attempting to get accomplished with government assistance that's been absent ever since. They're still not doing it, are they?
3: And there are so many we're not talking about. You know, I mean, it, just this year, the, this government launched a new caregiver recognition benefit. Okay, I mean, it sounds nice. The political win is that it's a monthly payment given directly To to the caregiver. So at that level, when we talk about identity and dignity, you know, this is a, a game changer at some point. But it's not a compensation, and there's many people we don't talk about. For instance, how about the younger caregivers, those who are living with a single parent, for instance, and who are taking care of their parents? What about the parents who live two provinces away, But in the end, are the only ones, you know, caring for someone who's suffering. There are so many, we, we just don't consider that we end up being abandoned. And on top of it, Roy, the ridiculousness doesn't stop there. It goes further because they made the measure perfectly inaccessible for those suffering with PTSD. So the system... Still recognize the people who take care of someone who is physically wounded, and that's a good thing. Okay, thank God. At least they have something, a little bit. They have some kind of a recognition. But if you live with someone who's mentally wounded, can you imagine that we're still in 2018 still ne- not recognized? So this kind of abandonment really is leading to a lot of pain that is directly leading to suicide. You know, we all have to own our responsibility when it comes to the suffering of veterans in this country. Either it's political, either is on a caregiver as a society and so on, but at one point we're going to have to make to stop making veterans and caregivers a political issue because we still are confronted to the same boat as we were confronted to with the Conservative Party. Think of of the news lately. Money unspent. uh, Money given to people who who shouldn't even receive money. How come someone who, who killed a cop received treatments from Veterans Affairs because he's the the child of a veteran it doesn't make sense no. and yet those who are loving those who are giving are still forgotten
0: you know and i don't think they they being the people who have the money who don't spend the money the hundreds of millions that they have to spend on to take care of veterans and their families those who have the physical wounds and those who have the mental wounds they don't they don't think about it. They don't know what they don't know what you live like. They don't know what your life was like continues to be like. They don't know. They haven't spoken to the person I spoke with a, with a with a former school in I think it was Nova Scotia a few years ago and uh, and her husband who did return from Afghanistan and had PTSD significantly. And he said his wife is now no longer a full-time school teacher. She's part time because she now has three children to look after, their two biological children, and him. And that was those were words from his mouth.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, and because we are so important, we are so important. I mean, in 2018, we shouldn't be at the stage of, of of you know making people cry, okay, about what we are living with daily i I shouldn't convince people of the fact that i love and i'm the only one seeing the good person this person is inside and that's the thing the suffering is so real and you know we all have answers that is making sense yeah okay i mean it's not only a question of money it's a question of political understanding and also therapeutic understanding.
0: You know, Jenny, when I uh, put the get of this program for today, I had a couple of choices. I could have done what we've done in the past, and that is do specifically a tribute to the soldiers and the military who have fought over the years. And we'll include some of that. And we did at the beginning of the program. Mm-hmm. But I thought not at the expense of the veterans and not at the expense of the of the families of the young veterans of today. It's not gonna happen. And and one of the one of the one of the points was I spoke not long ago with a young man who was standing at an intersection with a cardboard sign and he asked for money from passersby. And the I think the general consensus would have been here's a guy who just wants to go buy some alcohol. And some people probably gave him a quarter or two bucks or whatever they had just to get him away from their car. Not because they cared about him. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not denigrating people. I'm just saying this is yep. the way it happens. Get away from my car, please. You're scaring me a little bit. So here's a couple of bucks. Go away. I ended up mm-hmm. speaking with this person because I happened to see him in the parking lot of a shopping center right across from where he'd been standing. And he was a he was a, he was another young man who'd served in Afghanistan. He didn't have a home. He didn't have any prospects, and he just wanted to be alone because he said, "I don't fit in." Yeah. And I thought, I have to talk. We have to talk about this as well. Let me just take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the the trip that you undertook. Jenny, you traveled to different parts of Canada to meet veterans and their families.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What did you What did you hear? And when you when the was the caregiver recognition? benefit a significant part of the discussions?
3: Well, yes it is, because uh, no one I know actually in this country actually is receiving it. At all? Me personally, I know no one. I've heard of a couple, (laughs) but I know no one. Even myself, related to my ex-husband, he asked for it for me because I am still his caregiver on many levels. I am still in his life. And it took them six months to answer, and it was a negative answer, like for everybody else. So politically speaking, it was interesting, but on the field, maybe they will give you numbers that I know nothing about. As I said, if it's given to those who are taking care of, those who are physically wounded, That's perfect. This is how it should be. But I know no one taking care of a veteran with, for instance, PTSD who's receiving it.
0: What did you hear from these families you met as you traveled across the country?
3: You know what? I think everybody keeps saying the same thing they've been saying for the past 20 years. You know, that's the thing. The content of their fridge is somehow similar from, you know, one province to another, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're all facing the same financial challenge for those on the the, the new veteran uh, charter. Now, everybody knows that the pension for life won't be as generous for veterans as the old system is or was. So, they are facing and confronted to their physical and, and not their physical, sorry, their, their money challenges, the access to the health care, too. Don't forget that, you know, for many of them, one of the biggest problems they are facing is that no doctor wants to fill up their forms because they don't have access to their military medical files.
0: That's terrible. So,
3: I mean, how the hell can you get help? If you cannot, just answer the damn papers.
0: So, so the doctor, so a, doc, a civilian doctor who has as a patient a mentally wounded veteran cannot access the medical files of that mentally wounded veteran in order to help treat him or her.
3: <laughs> Think of the story here in Quebec. Okay, The OSI clinic here in Quebec City is known. for actually uh, saying bye-bye to veterans once they find out that they are using medical cannabis uh, instead of the pills, right? And you know that medical cannabis, I mean, it it has a lot of success among the community for the PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. But once they discover that they are using medical cannabis, they are so against it that they will kick veterans out of the clinic, so once the, this veteran is out, the the new doctor you will find in the civilian, civilian world, this doctor doesn't have access to his military medical file. So how can he say that a wound or something he sees is directly related to the military service? Now, if Veterans Affairs don't see or is not being told by a doctor that something is, directly related to the military service, of course they're going to deny everything.
0: So now when you travel across the country, and we spoke with Michelle in Saskatchewan, who yes. you met and you introduced me to, she was on the program yesterday, the story is the same across the country. Now you you also testified before the Veterans Affairs Committee, did you not?
3: Yes, I did. What? Did, how, yes, I did.
0: how? How attentive were they?
3: It's the same story over and over. And that's the the, the sad part of it. You know, they're all very nice and being, I thank you for everything you do. Oh, yeah, and thank you for your service. These people and this committee has been told the same thing over and over, not only by me, because I believe it was the fourth or the fifth time I was uh, testifying, but also by the the ombudsman of uh, veterans and so on. I mean, the political will is just not there, so... Until the will is there, everything is like a big circus.
1: Okay, we and have it's
3: all a big circus. You have no idea how much some public servants should be literally kicked out of their functions in order to really create the necessary change. But it's not happening because everyone, everybody is sort of protecting one another and the entire system. So each each win, okay, is the result of a huge battle.
0: Jenny, I have literally 30 seconds. I'm sorry. Again, like I said earlier, I wish we had more time. But in the 30 seconds, what's happening to families of Canadian young veterans with PTSD? What's happening to them, to the families?
3: At some level, you will find more and more online tools to help you. At some level, you can now go to an MFRC close to you, and you will receive services. So there are new services but in terms of the political re- recognition, it's going to be, it's going to take a while. So just continue to do your thing. Continue to educate yourself and don't give up one day at a time.
0: All right, Jenny Mignot, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for what you're doing for the veterans thank of today, today right. who are suffering with their mental wounds. All the best to you. We'll stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Jenny Mignot. Let's get to, uh, to my next two guests. Joining us from Afghanistan, and I've been in touch with him by way of email and Twitter for some time, left behind Alex, his real name is Sajad. Hi Sajjad, how are you?
4: I am doing well. How are you doing, my friend Roy?
0: Doing great. Uh, how long have you been trying to get into Canada? How long have you been attempting to make your way to this country to live here? Uh,
4: since 2012
0: when there was that brief opportunity that was presented?
4: Yeah, I mean, the very, very uh, late can be 2014, the deadline for the process, which I missed that, was 2012. Yeah,
0: 2012. Tell us, what what did you do when you were with the Canadian military units? What did you do for them? What was your job?
4: My job was to... uh, translate and exchange language. I was a link between the Canadian forces and Afghan National Army. So we were training them. At the same time we were joining, going to the patrols, walking patrols, coming under attacks, you know, coming under ambush by the enemy. We all experienced those moments. Even Jims, he was over there. So our job was not easy. We were not just linguists, we were like cultural advisors. We had to to, uh, let our Canadian mentors know about the customs, about the culture. And of course, we were talking to, I mean, bad guys as well, like prisoners.
0: So uh, when they were on patrol, you were on patrol with them. When they, when our soldiers were getting shot at, you were getting shot at. In fact, I've heard it said exactly. that you were a a particular target f- because they knew that you were a translator. So the 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 insurgents would try to kill you particularly.
4: Exactly. Like uh, we were the eyes of the Canadian mentors. Yeah. Because we were showing them the way. We were helping them to talk and communicate with the Afghans.
0: When we talked last time, you told us that your life is under threat, and the Taliban have made it very clear that if they catch you, they will kill you.
4: Yeah, simple. It's, it's obvious. I mean, they will not kill me. They will not kill me easily. They will torture me to death. I mean, they don't kill people with bullets they torture they slaughter they i mean even chop they even do whatever they want i mean they are brutal they are savage they are wild and they're they animals
0: and they're looking for you right
4: exactly i have i mean i sent the threat letters that i had i mean i think i sent you one i have the other one translated already I mean, I received these steps, these threat letters, night letters, and phone calls. What should I do? I mean, even if I complain, nothing changes. The only change can be happening from Canada government. I don't know when they will take this action. I mean, serious. I'm not sure.
0: Let me bring James Ackham into the conversation here. Uh, James, uh, friend of uh, Sajjad's in Afghanistan, now in, living in Calgary, Canadian citizen. Hey, James, good to talk to you again. Hey, Roy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. When you, when you listen to your friend Sajad and what he says and his fear for his life and he wants to come to Canada, how are you feeling about uh, when you hear him talk about this?
5: Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here and uh, giving me another opportunity to talk to Alex over there. So I totally understand his situation. So I don't know how is he dealing with that situation. Actually, uh, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to deal with that situation over there nowadays. Like as you guys all know, media, it's social media is everywhere. Like over 50% of Afghanistan land is under Taliban control, so they're everywhere. So I I really feel bad for this guy. I don't know how they are dealing with this situation, so um, hopefully uh, we can aware the people here in Canada, aware to know about them, that they're in really bad situation, that they could help them. So not sure really how they are dealing with that.
0: Yeah, I, I
5: was at the same situation.
0: Say that again, please.
5: I said I was at the same situation. I understand how, how how bad their their situation is there. So hopefully we can get people help here in Canada to help them out to come over to Canada. So
0: James, how did you uh how did you actually get into Canada? I know you had help from people like my good friend Joe Warmington, but how 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 did this actually happen for you that you were able to come to Canada?
5: Well, I actually appreciate their help. There was Joe Warmington and there was uh, my uh, my old colleague, like uh, Eric Kirkwood, which is uh, we were at the same. He was um, he was my mentor. We were giving training to the A A. So um, I really appreciate their help. Actually, when I was in Germany, when Germany didn't accept my 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 refugee claim, and then I've been in contact with Eric, and Eric contact Joe. So that's that's how I got help from these guys. So they they really did hard and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they got me here. So, and I really appreciate their help. And and
0: you are a Canadian citizen now, right?
5: No, I'm actually not a Canadian citizen, so I I will be a Canadian citizen
1: pretty
0: soon. Okay, you're on the well on the way to being a I'm Canadian on my citizen. Way there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, um why don't you uh, why do not you why don't you talk to your to each other? Or your your friends, you know each other. Please, we'd like to listen in.
5: Sure. Hey Alex, nice to hear from you. How you doing James? Long time no talking. How you
4: doing? How have you been?
5: I'm doing good man. I'm always thinking about you and other friends like they, they live there. I'm, I'm, I'm like always thinking about you guys. I don't know how, how you guys are doing there. So I understand you guys situation like I, I've been there. I know what you guys are doing there. So hopefully we can make people aware of your situation here in Canada. As you know, on uh, November 17th, there is another meeting that Joe Warmington and Mrs. Wendy, they will be together. And then I think they have a meeting there to to let the people know. And uh, hopefully we can get some help for you guys. And um, let's see. And I'm really gra- glad that you're, you're do- doing well right now.
4: Yeah, thank you, brother. Thank you very much. I'm really happy that... At least you and your family, you're safe, and the other uh, uh, fellow interpreters, they're safe. So, yeah, things will change probably soon or maybe later, but uh, somehow we have to wait for it for the right time and the right thing to happen. And, yeah, seriously, I'm really happy. You're a hardworking brother. I heard from fellow interpreters how a hardworking person you are. I really appreciate it, and I'm proud of you, brother.
5: Oh, thank you very much, Alex. Al- Alex, okay. let me ask you. Let me oh, ask you.
0: Let me ask you a quick question, Alex uh, Sajad. Let me uh, yeah. because people have asked this: Are you able to? Would you be able to travel out of Afghanistan and and make your way somehow to Canada and claim refugee status, or is it impossible for you to get out of the country?
4: Uh, it's not uh, that easy. I mean, it's costly. I mean, the only. Easiest way for me to come to Canada is Ukraine. I mean, it costs seven thousand and five hundred US dollars. So for one person. So you know, like I have a baby boy right now. He is uh, twenty-seven years old. (laughs) So twenty-seven days old. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's really costly to go get into Ukraine and claim refugee over there. Even I can uh, seek as an asylum over there coming into Canada but it's really hard to get in there the only easiest country I can get into is uh, Uzbekistan which is we has a border with Afghanistan I have been there last time with one of my friends I was with him as a linguist so but there is no any UNHCR or let's say I cannot claim a refugee over there there is no Canadian or Canada embassy in Uzbekistan that's the easiest country I can get in there, but that's safe, but costly as well. And
0: yeah, and uh, if you if you try to if you try really to, if you try to leave, or if you were to try to buy a ticket, an airline ticket, then your name would be out there, and the uh, and the and the Taliban would be able to locate you, as opposed to contacting you through social media. That would yeah. be a, that would be a concern exactly. as well. Um, so you really need right now. You need the Canadian government. You need the political parties and the Canadian government. To show the support yeah. and the interest, to bring you and the other interpreters to this country, which I believe you you have earned, in spades, and you deserve to be here, and we'll keep on fighting for you. I know there's a rally coming up. We leave on the 23rd of November, so um, let's get Canadians involved, guys. Thank you very much for talking to me, and and let's make sure let's do the best we can to get you here, uh, Alex. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, and thanks for the time.
4: All right. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay. We'll stay in touch with you. Joining me now is Major Mark Campbell, a Decorated Regular Forces Infantry Soldier with 32 years of service in the Canadian Forces. He was a major in the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Major Campbell served two tours of duty in Afghanistan. We've spoken to him many times. On the 2nd of June, 2008, Major Campbell was targeted by a Taliban IED. He lost both legs and suffered extensive additional injury. For over two hours, Major Campbell, fully lucid, was carried and helicoptered without any pain medication to a field surgical hospital. He was rushed into emergency surgery where he had to be resuscitated on the operating table. Major Campbell joins us to talk about what life was like. Being a member of the Canadian military family was his life's choice and how he lives with life now. Um, he's a member of the Equitas Society and uh, was part of the class action lawsuit brought against the federal government. Major Campbell, it's always an honor to speak with you, and I thank you for joining us today.
6: Well, thank you very much, Roy. It's always a pleasure to speak to you.
0: When, uh, when, when Remembrance Day arrives, what, what, memories do, what special memories does, that, does this day hold for you?
6: Well, um, Remembrance Day for me always, of course, used to be about um, the traditional veteran, the old, the old wars, the World War I, World War II, Korea. Um, and uh, that all changed for me, I guess, personally in the aftermath of uh, 9-11 when uh, I first deployed to Afghanistan uh, shortly afterwards in uh, January of 2002. And we lost uh, four four members of my, my my battle group on on that tour um, to a friendly fire incident of all things. Um, in any case, um, that that made Remembrance Day much more immediate for me. And, and over the past um, ten years since I was was wounded um, and lost uh, a lot of people that I know, um, Remembrance Day has taken on a lot more um, current aspect for me, I suppose. And and my memories now are are much more immediate of, of of the people i i personally knew who have who have been lost or whose lives have been changed forever and and of course their families as part of the uh, the extended aftermath of, of of any war so yeah um my my thoughts are of 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 the modern day veteran as much as they are of the uh, of the traditional veteran roy
0: i had a conversation with somebody about that earlier today and the point was made that uh the demographic, the 18 to 34-year-old demographic now, has a, has a m- greater appreciation for Remembrance Day because of the very fact that you pointed out, and that is that a younger generation of veterans exists, veterans who who fought in Afghanistan, veterans who actually fall into that demographic. Uh, they can be in their uh, early 30s, maybe a little bit older, but they certainly there's a resonance with the younger Canadians now when, for Remembrance Day.
6: Yeah, I I I think uh, I think you're right, Roy. Um, certainly, the numbers that, that attend the, the ceremonies, despite the weather in some cases, is is always encouraging. The numbers seem to be growing every year, or at least holding steady. And and you know, we 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 see the education of the younger generation occurring in in the schools. With uh, I mean, we always lament that you know we don't teach enough history in school, but I, I think we do um, tend to hit the nail pretty close to the head when it comes to remembrance and 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 the need to commemorate um you know the those who have served our nation and and paid the uh, if not the ultimate sacrifice some some degree of sacrifice so um just by by virtue of serving and and so i think it's important that uh, the younger generation be engaged um because they're they're the ones who, who vote and and they decide the the future of the forces and the future direction of security for canada so it's important that they be engaged and understand that, that wars come with a cost.
0: Major Campbell, you certainly sacrificed a tremendous amount for this country and uh, and, and for the people of Canada and what our ideals and objectives are in, in Canada. It was on your second tour of duty in Afghanistan that you suffered that horrible injury when the, the uh, Taliban exploded the IED. And if if I recall correctly, I read your story. You and and uh, some of your fellow soldiers were PPCLI uh, soldiers were unit were on the way to assist uh, a sergeant who had been grievously wounded in a firefight. And and did you you stopped on, on just before you got to the gunfire to assess where you were, and and they found yourself in a kill zone. That was set up by the Taliban. Do yeah. I have that correctly?
7: Yeah,
6: that you've got it, Roy. Um, exactly. There was a, a, a Canadian unit watching our right-hand flank, um, you know, protecting our side, as it were, while we were conducting uh, a, a village, uh, a succession of village searches um, with the Afghan soldiers. And I was working closely with the Afghans, uh, mentoring them in combat operations on the job, so to speak, and. Um, yeah, we uh, we we ran to the sound of the guns um uh when a Canadian soldier was was injured on the right-hand side with his his unit. He was going to die if he couldn't be evacuated and the only way to evacuate him was to to sort of break contact with the enemy at that point and and allow that 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 platoon to carry their wounded out. Um and so in order for that to happen, someone else had to take over the fight and that someone else was was us. We were the next the next people in the neighborhood. So we turned in 90 degrees and and ran to the sound of the guns, and uh, I called the halt just short um, in order to, because you don't want to run pell-mell into a gunfight. You want to be organized when you get there. And and so we sort of wanted to rein in the Afghans, which was always like herding cats to a certain extent. And uh, so we, we just wanted to make sure our ducks were in a, in a row um, briefly before we, we stepped into the, into the gunfire. And um, that turned out to be a kill zone, you're right. And the enemy always initiated, if he could, his ambushes by um, exploding a, an improvised explosive device in the hopes of catching someone, creating casualties and, and chaos and confusion and dust and noise and smoke and, and all those other things, would, at which point he would then hit you from, you know, multiple multiple directions with rocket propelled grenades and machine guns, which is precisely what happened to us. But the enemy made a mistake that day and allowed us enough time to get ourselves set in a defensive posture before he initiated the ambush. I think they were waiting for me to, to actually step on the bomb and and, and that took a while because a whole bunch of other people walked over at first. Um, I was busy on the radio and working the map. And uh, when I came around a, a small wall, that's when I stepped uh, onto the location of the bomb, and that's when they blew it up. And, and so we were ready for them when they hit us. And uh, despite the injuries that were caused to myself and four others, um, the bulk of our 60-man organization was able to give the good news right back to the bad guys. And uh, we, we quickly regained the initiative in terms of winning the firefight and uh, sort of push the enemy off of us, um, and we're able to uh, do that and engage the enemy long enough for that other Canadian platoon to pass through us with their injured and get them out as well. So, um, you know, we we did manage to achieve our objective to to a certain extent, although the fact that we had suffered casualties uh, as a result of that was was uh, an unfortunate consequence of, of, of being in the right place at the right time to do the right thing, and and and. And in that regard, I mean, the in- injuries—you uh, know—were they inevitable? I don't know. But uh, you know, we we did everything we could that day to do things right. So you know, you could second-guess yourself till the cows come home. And there's no point; it's a mug's game. But yeah, uh, yeah. so there I was, uh, missing my legs, uh, having a, having a really bad day at the office, so to speak, wide awake and uh, in a, in a fair amount of pain. Uh, the guys around me were brilliant. They they jumped right onto me when I when I yelled out. That I needed assistance. Uh, you know, there, there, there were—I mean, to paint a picture for you, there were rocket propel grenades whizzing around and exploding, and bullets flying all around. And I mean, it was—it 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 was pretty intense. And uh, but the troops were brilliant. They piled right onto me under fire and got the tourniquets—two tourniquets on each leg—to stop the bleeding, because both femoral arteries were, were pumping out my life's blood pretty quick. There, I only had a couple minutes to live. But uh, they got the tourniquets on and stopped the stopped the bleeding, and my. My senior medic, who was one of the four uh, injured, he was he was badly concussed. Um, he won the Medal of Military Valor that day for continuing to do his job despite his injuries, uh, his wounds, and uh, he patched me up as best he could and, uh, and um, gave me a liter of rescue flow to trick the body into believing that it had more blood than it did to keep the blood pressure up because um, it was about a 90-degree um, running gun battle to get us out of there to the point where we could... Land a helicopter safely for the evacuation to, to Kandahar Airfield and the Roll Three Surgical Hospital. So it was about a ninety degree, yeah, or 90, 90 minute, uh, hour and a hour and a half running gun battle over Hill and Dale. With you're right, no 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 pain medication, so to speak. It was a uh, it was a bit of a rough ride, but uh, um, stuck it out and uh, gripped my teeth and away we went. And uh, yeah, it was it was quite the quite the scene. Been, like I say, a bad day at the office all around, but. Uh, you know sometimes you get the sometimes uh, you know you're the you're the bear and sometimes you're the bug on the windshield and that day we we, we just happened to have a, a bad day the enemy had the uh, the upper hand but we certainly um, gave the good news back to him so I, I had to call it a draw at the end of the day but uh, yeah about two hours all told to get me back to the hospital
0: well major Campbell uh, you really are uh, a remarkable man and uh, and the the men and women in the in the military It's a special calling. I really believe that it's a calling that people follow because they they feel it. They it's it's not just cerebral; it's emotional. It's the heart leading the head, and the head in conjunction with the heart. Uh, I also want to make our listeners aware that you and I agreed that I could ask you any question today, in in this segment that we're talking about Uh, Mm -hmm. your life as a soldier. What is it that made you answer what answer the call? What was the call you felt to become a lifelong member? Of the Canadian military to make it your career, your life's pursuit. What was it?
6: Um, that's that's always a good question, Roy. Um, I thought about it during the break a little bit. Um, I, I, I I'd have to say, at the essence of it, it's 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 a desire to be part of something bigger than yourself, and to be able to affect change. I think, as part of a a bigger team, as part of a bigger family, and and that's to me what it was really all about. I I I I, I fell into the army. Um, in a way, almost kind of by accident, and I, I suspect a lot of people do. It's not something that's necessarily at the forefront of, of everybody's mind. Uh, I, uh, I, you know, I don't come from a, a badly broken home or anything like that. I had a good upbringing and all the rest of it. Um, but I think, like all all young adults, uh, I felt, uh, you know, a desire to be out on my own and, and leave the nest, as it were, at the at the age of 18 after high school and whatnot. I delayed that for a while and did uh, a succession of, um, of jobs, uh, civilian jobs, just to, to see, to make sure that I was making the right decision. If I joined, uh, if I had joined the army, I, I'd been in army cadets and uh, and I was serving in the reserves. Uh, I spent six years there, sort of trying on the army, um, from recruit to sergeant, and then uh, I finally, yeah, I, I just made the decision. It was almost a natural progression for me at that point to. Uh, to, to go full time which is what I did going the officer route uh, and and uh and joined the join the army and 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 I found it you know um the the course of my career to be very fulfilling I had the opportunity to go and affect change around the world um uh in some of the less nicer places but uh certainly places that needed uh, a a change or a, a break as it were um and I think that's what we provided to the people of Afghanistan certainly for for uh you know the uh not a generation but long enough for for a new generation to take hold there hopefully um so yeah it all boiled down for me to be due to, to to being part of something bigger than myself and and uh i thrived on the organizational aspects of the army i think i, I took to it like a, a duck to water in many regards and uh and uh it, you know it just it fit me well and i think i was a good fit for the army too so i i did all right at what i do and uh you know, um, I really, really enjoyed um, the essence of it. is is It's a people job, and, and you know, the army's biggest asset is 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 its, is its people.
0: The sense of the sense of uh, family, the sense of of interdependence. And I, you, you say you were, you did pretty well. You did extremely well. I'm just reading from the Equitas Society uh, during his service mark was awarded decorations for service and peacekeeping missions including the u.n forces in cyprus 1990 the nato stabilization force in bosnia 1997 and the canadian forces peacekeeping services medal in addition as a result of his 2002 afghanistan tour he received the southwest asia service medal the u.s army bronze star and the Commander-in-Chief Unit Commendation Award to the 3rd Battalion of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Finally, as a result of his injury sustained in his 2008 tour, he received the Sacrifice Medal. He was subsequently awarded the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal in recognition of his veterans' advocacy efforts. Uh, You have contributed so incredibly much, Major Campbell, and you still inspire people major campbell over the time i've gotten to know you over the last number of years uh i've gotten to know a man i have just huge respect for someone who uh, when you speak you command authority you also are someone who speaks the truth and you're someone who inspires um careful thought now I mean all of that, and I've had so many emails from Canadians who've heard you on the program and heard you elsewhere and know of your advocacy for veterans. And I have to ask you about the time with the Equitas Society and the lawsuit against uh, the federal government and the fact that uh, successive governments have argued that they have no social contract with veterans. And uh, and the court cases, which went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada when it, it decided that it was not going to support the lawsuit. What do you come away with? What was, in, in I guess, in in encapsulated form, what was it all about again? And what are you left with after the whole experience?
6: Well, first and foremost, thanks for those very kind words, Roy. I think uh, uh, you're you're kinder than I deserve, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you over, over the radio. <laughs> but thank you very
0: you've much. Earned, you've earned that on a lot more.
6: Um, you know, at the end of the day, the lawsuit was all about fairness. It was about equity. Equitas um, meant equity, and 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 it was about justice for Canada's new generation of veterans that um, are subject to the new Veterans Charter, which came into effect on the first of April, 2006. And that created a, a, a schism in in the veteran community by creating a different level of financial compensation for everyone who was injured or wounded. Um, after the 1st of April 2006, basically the government decided to reduce our disability compensation, well not the government, the government enacted legislation designed by the bureaucrats of Veterans Affairs to reduce our disability compensation by 40% in the middle of the war, not bother to educate those of us who were busy fighting the war, just do it to us, so that we found out in our hospital beds that we had been financially stiffed as part of the deal. So that was, that was the essence of the lawsuit, was to try to uh, gain parity with the former Pension Act that had been in effect from basically 1919 through till the 1st of April 2006 when the government saw fit to change the rules of the game on us without bothering to tell us. Um, and, and so the lawsuit wound its way around for, for seven years through the B.C. Uh, um, uh, Supreme Court and then the, the B.C. Court of Appeals, and, uh, and it ended up on the doorstep of the Supreme Court of Canada with a, a, a request for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court on our side. Basically, we were appealing the, the, the findings of the courts to that point that the government of Canada had no legal obligation uh, to its, its veterans, uh, to, to the people that serve um no no legally binding obligation to to care for us in terms of uh treating our injuries financial compensation and so on and so forth just a moral obligation well the moral obligation quite frankly in, in our view doesn't doesn't cut it because what it does is it does allow the government on a whim to change the rules of the game on us just like it did on the first of april 2006 creating two levels of care for veterans of the same friggin war it's it's ridiculous you know you've got you've got two people um I'm not going to call out any names, but they exist. So let's say there's, there's two guys who are missing both legs and, uh, from the same war, but on, on different dates, and they get fundamentally different compensation packages. Well, how can you have two guys from the same war with the same injuries and fundamentally different financial compensation that dictates how their families are going to exist over the course of that veteran's life and his, and his survivor's benefits? It just doesn't make any sense. So that's what we went to court for. We got all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and then the Supreme Court decided that it was not going to hear our our case. And the Supreme Court has a tradition of not telling you why it's not going to hear your case. It's just not going to hear your case. That left me pretty disappointed and frustrated, I've got to tell you, Roy, um, because it, it told me that, quite frankly... There is no justice, there is no legal recourse for justice for veterans in Canada in, in, in 2018. It doesn't exist. If you can't get justice, if you can't get the Supreme Court to hear your case, well, then there, there, justice cannot be achieved. So as a result of that, we're left with um, nothing but um, a recourse to a political solution to the problem we're forced to rely and to continue to advocate to um, we're forced to rely and continue to advocate to our politicians to do the right thing and enact uh, legally binding legislation that will will make the social covenant um, a legally binding obligation on the government of Canada to do the right thing you know the government has has, has come out and, and, and you know um, the prime minister he he made a definitive promise prior to the election. He said that he was going to restore lifelong pensions. Well, there was only one pension to restore, and that was the Pension Act. Now, we're not; nobody's asking for the Pension Act back. All we're asking for is parity with the Pension Act. We just want the young soldiers to have the same ob- opportunity going forward in life as they had prior to the 1st of April 2006. Now the government has come out with this uh, pension for life that is supposed to um, satisfied the Prime Minister's obligation to the veteran community. It doesn't come close. For one thing, again, it's less generous than the former Pension Act. That has been determined not only by independent study by people like Sean Brua, a fellow advocate, but also by the um, Library of Parliament. So for the Minister of uh, Veterans Affairs to stand up and say that's not correct is, is an outright mistruth. The fact of the matter is they're creating yet a third-tier of lesser uh, financial care for veterans as of the 1st of April 2019 next year when this so-called Pension for Life takes effect. So even more, believe it or not, Roy, more more benefits are going to disappear as of the 1st of April if you're injured as of that date or going forward. So uh, yet another lesser level of care for our veterans is in store unless we can get this business sorted out with some legally binding um, obligation on the part of the government of Canada. So what we're left with after all of those words is a reliance once again on politicians to do the right thing. That's a scary thought.
0: Well, it is, and uh, they should, it would do well just to go back and reread what uh, Prime Minister Borden said in 1917. Uh, he made it very, very clear. Major Campbell, I, I read it, uh, everything there is in the Equitas Society .ca, dossier or the file that's publicly available about what you're living with and what your challenges are. You're an incredibly brave man, and uh, it's an honor and a privilege to uh, have spoken with you today, and each time we speak. Thank you so much, and uh, uh, you are a Canadian hero.
7: Well,
6: Roy, I you turn are. that around on you because uh, I, I, I commend you for not only having me on the show, but having people like me on the show that don't necessarily say the, uh, the, the the easy things that people want to hear. Um, so I, I commend you for tackling difficult issues and, and for, for having people like me on the show and giving me a voice. Um, that's important. You give the veteran community a voice, and, and that's that's terribly important to us. So I, I commend you for that, and I, I, I thank you for that, my friend.
0: Thank you, sir. Thank you, Major right. Campbell. You have a good one. You too. Major Mark Campbell, and you can, if, if you want to read one, Major Campbell has to live with. Daily, go to equitasociety.ca, and then ask yourself. Better still, ask your government what the responsibility is to veterans. Do that. Donna is in Hamilton. Donna, who uh, in your circle of family or friends uh, who served in the military do you want to uh, do you want to talk about?
8: Hi, Roy. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I'd like to speak about my grandfather, my mum's dad. Um, when the First World War broke out, he was already 26, but he was one of the first to enlist. He did serve in the trenches and saw many of his friends die. Um, he did come back, but was never physically or mentally the same. My mum has always said that he never, ever spoke about what happened in the war, except on Remembrance Day, he would go down to the Legion Hall and you know, basically share his feelings with his buddies, but never with his family. And even though he made such a sacrifice in that war, when the Second World War broke out, he was a 50-year-old man, and yet he was so determined to serve his country again that he rode his bicycle 85 kilometers to the nearest sign-up center, and sadly he was told, well, you're in poor health, you're too old, um, we can't have you enlist, and he was heartbroken that's how dedicated he was to
0: his country. What a tremendous story. You know, it reminds me of, uh, we played the clip earlier of Ed Mahoney, who was uh, at uh, Juno Beach on D-Day, June 6, 1944, describing the scene and the horror, and at 83 years of age, telling me at the time, I'd do it again.
8: I'm sure he would, and I'm sure there are many that would.
0: This just There's an incredible dedication, an incredible sense of, uh, the word's not very popular these days, patriotism.
8: Absolutely.
0: There's an incredible sense of affection for your nation. Not necessarily very popular these days, but it exists, and it should be encouraged. It shouldn't be talked down about.
8: I agree with
0: you. Donna, thank you so much for sharing the story about your grandfather.
8: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Bye-bye. Oh, 800-263-2428, the number. John, uh, John, is it John Bennett? Yep, it's John Bennett. In, in Toronto. Hey, John, how are you? John Bennett, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Good, sir. What do you, who do you want to talk to us about?
9: Um, I'd like to talk about my great-grandfather, Thomas Bennett. Yes, sir. Who, he was killed in World War I um, with the Seaforth Highlanders of Scotland. He was 32 years old. Um, and his son, my grandfather, and I have my father sitting with me right now. That's his father that we're talking about. My grandfather, who I'm named after, John Bennett, was a World War II veteran with the Royal Canadian Artillery the 42nd battery of the royal, the seventh light anti aircraft regiment of the royal canadian artillery um... he lost his brother was killed uh... his brother william montgomery bennett bill bennett was killed in january of 1944 uh... liberating in the canadian liberation of italy in world war two and my grandfather survived world war two after losing his brother he was blown up in a sherman tank um, his tank was shelled hit by a german shell and, uh, um, th- and he jumped out of the top of the tank with his legs on fire, and he had second and third degree burns from that. And then a second German shell came in and blew the tank up, destroyed the tank, and my grandfather was the only survivor at 32 years old oh at God. the end of World War II and the liberation of Holland.
0: What a, what a family uh, history serving uh, this country yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. a thank you for sharing that John we thank you please thank your father as well. and my great-grandfather
9: he was killed on March 13th 1917 in World War one that's my great-grandfather my father's grandfather he was killed in France. Um, and he was 32 years old with the 8th Battalion of the C-4th Highlanders.
0: Oh, man. that you know so all of this is... Was... ...wreaths
9: for them today, and my dad would like to say hello, because he's been listening to this radio station for years. Sure. So we got Jock Bennett here.
0: Hi, Jock. How are you, sir?
5: Thank you. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you for your service to Canada thank you guys too well I'm his just I, and
5: his
9: grandfather that we were just talking about lest we forget 100th anniversary of the Armistice
0: yes sir lest we forget thank you John thank you for you to your dad and thank you so much for calling in Anthony's in London Anthony hi
7: hi uh, my uh, late uncle he passed 20 years ago my uncle Tony he was in the service corps and uh, I'm not sure I have to check with my cousins either in France or or Holland uh, he was riding a Harley carrying dispatcher there was an officer in the sidecar and the other hit a landmine or a german that had thrown a hand grenade anyhow the officer was killed and my uncle because of the explosion wound up on a branch of a tree and the last thing you remember was a german soldier looking up at him and he threw his knife at him and then my uncle passed out so the next thing you know is that he was found by the uh, red cross uh, but he was mia for a few days and my aunt who was uh, my dad was uh, only about seventeen at the time? Was consoling her because they figured they had lost him, but he survived and um, he was there at the uh, at the end. There's a picture of him in Holland uh, with the you know the windmill, fake windmill background, and uh, you know he had American helmet and he had the sidearm and everything. But uh, you know I never got any of those stories from him. I um, I got them from my aunt. He never really talked about the war. Yeah,
0: you know, and there are these small there's millions I'm sure millions of incidents yep. that that if you were to put them all together would paint a, a tremendous picture of of what happened but that yep. one incident means a lot just to hear you describe what happened with you know your uh what was your grandfather
7: your, uh, my uncle
0: your uncle was was found on the uh on a, on a or found himself on a branch on a tree after the yeah. After the, uh, the the hand grenade or the shell blew up. Thank you so much for the call, Anthony. Let's talk to Charles in uh, Sherwood Park, Alberta. Charles, thank you for the call. Hello, Charles. Charles, are you there? Let's try to get Charles in the air. Can we do that? You there, Charles? Hi, Roy. Yes, sir. Go ahead, please.
1: In uh, 1977, I was 20 years old, serving with the uh, the NATO contingent in Germany. In the fall, we uh, we uh, go on the major exercises, and uh, they're off the bases and through through the German towns and countryside. And our armored personnel carriers roll into this one town. One of the more humorous sights was uh, uh, a housefrau chasing one of our soldiers down the street with a broom off her out of her uh, garden. <laughs> but we were billeted in a uh, garage. And uh, when I went to lay out my sleeping bag and that for the night, I looked up on the wall above the workbench, and there was a uh, colorized photograph of someone around my age in a uh, German First World War uniform looking back at me, and it said, Gefallen, 1917.
0: Wow. Now, I have to tell you, the image of a woman with a broom in Germany, chasing an armored personnel carrier down the road—that's classic.
1: Oh, she was actually chasing one of the uh, one of the uh, officers.
0: Oh, one of the just officers. Beating them on
1: the back with the. Uh, basically, what you what we would do is we would just wherever wherever the exercises took us, we would go with armored personnel carriers right, right. and uh, set
0: up. Charles, I have to stop officers. you just because we're because the show's out of time. I thank you I'm for the call, time, sir, right? from Char- from Sherwood Park, Alberta. Thank you so much.